This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, and I'm joined now on the line by Mickey Ashmore, who's the founder and CEO of Saba. Mickey, thanks for joining hey, us. Carl. Hey, I never had you in class, right? That is correct. I do not think so. Yeah, uh, I, but, uh, I, I usually remember names. I just wanted to check for sure, but you are a grad of the Wharton School. I, w- I was an undergrad, and I, I wish I had because I could have learned some things that I could be using now. Uh, yeah, back then you didn't know you were going to be a product entrepreneur. I didn't. I never thought I'd be selling shoes. I can tell you that much. <laughs> All right. Well, f- first things first, let's point our listeners to your website. It's Saba, and I'm going to spell S-A-B-A-H, Saba.am. What's that? That's correct. What's that AM about? That's the top level domain for some country? Yeah, it, it's for Armenia. That has nothing. It's not about Armenia as much as uh, Saba is the Turkish word for the morning time. So uh, AM is the morning. Saba.com was taken. Saba.net was taken. Saba, you know, everything else was taken. And, I, and you know, we, we built our business, uh, I don't know, a little antithetically in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and, and one of those, that was one of the choices, I guess. Yeah, right. you know, it's funny because you you don't know where you're going and sometimes and, and well, actually let's, uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's start with, tell us about the product. Tell us about Saba's. Yeah. yeah so Saba, um, we're a brand and a maker of leather shoes based here in New York with a few stores around the country. And we make our shoes. We operate a small factory, really a workshop in the Southeast of Turkey. It's actually in a town called Gaziantep, which is down along the Syrian border. And we have a, a small workshop there, um, which we got involved with in 2013. And have, um, we, we now basically have taken it over. Um, of about 30 to 35 workers that make all of our shoes by hand. And we produce them. Uh, we employ a really unique hand-stitching method. That this one string that runs around the sole of our shoes is what holds it together. And it's a, it's, a, it's a type of shoe construction you really don't see in really any shoes made anywhere else but these few towns in southeast Turkey. And then the shoes are made um, using just all natural, really high-quality leather. So it's simple um, but really great ingredients, I like to say. And then we add, a, we add a, a replaceable rubber sole to the bottom. So that allows the shoe to live on through a lot of wear and tear and travels. Um, yeah, so they're just a really, you know, classic shoe. Yeah, you know, it's you really sort of have to see them. So I'm going to make sure, tell our listeners. So go to Saba.am, that's S-A-B-A-H.am, Saba.am, and check, check them out. Yeah, they're super distinct, cool. It's a distinct shoe. You know, it's a... It's a it's a pretty novel product, although it's based on a really old world tradition. So it's yeah. an interesting blend, very much yeah. like turkey. You know, my uh, one of my staff members who wrote the intro uh, uh, referred to it as a slipper, and I I see why he did that because it does have a slipper, certain slipper aesthetic to it. But it it it's a shoe intended to be worn worn outdoors, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah, the, so the shoe is based on a traditional Turkish slipper. The dates, you know, they, they, you know, the claim is that these have been made in the southeast of Turkey for hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand years, and it's, um, it was a shoe people wore around the home, and and sometimes in the street, but it was a shoe you put on in your home when you left the street, you transitioned from street to home shoes, uh, but we've taken that construction and those great materials, and um, you know, improved them quite a bit, 
added a bit more refinement. And then with replaceable rubber sole, they're super street ready. Um, so our customers traveling them, working them, commuting the city in them. We got people getting married in our shoes now. Um, so they're, they're really versatile. Yeah. And if I were to describe them, I would say they do have a slipper-like quality in the sense that they are a, a flat for sure. And you have a slip-on and a slide. And maybe there's even a little suggestion of a little whimsical turning up in the front that, that evokes uh, some of the historical uh, you, you, appearance. You yeah, exactly. So they're really beautiful. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna order a pair for sure. They're super cool. Okay. Cool. So um, so take us back to the origin story. Yeah. So when I you know I graduated from Wharton um, and I went to work for Microsoft and I went to Seattle for a year and then an opportunity opened up for me to move to Istanbul for six months and live and work there. And I jumped at it. I'd been to Istanbul before and I absolutely loved it and always wanted the chance to live and work abroad. A six-month gig at Microsoft ended up being two years. So I fully um, relocated into the Microsoft Turkey office. I was the only non-Turk in the office. Learned Turkish, really fell in love with the culture, the people. Um, had an amazing experience professionally and personally. And towards the end of my time there, I was dating someone who her family was from the southeast region of Turkey, where we make our shoes today. And through her, actually through her grandmother, I was gifted a pair of the traditional slippers, the ones that are made in Gaziantep. Um, and I put them on my feet, and I absolutely loved them. I loved that they felt. They, they were funky. They had a turned-up curled toe. They had yeah. embroidered and patterned across the top. It was really a far, you know, same construction in what we do, of what we do, but a, a very different look. Um, and at that time, you know, Turkey's a modern, a really modern society, and even in, in, in dress as well. So this shoe wasn't being worn in, in, you know, in modern Turkish dress. It was really a relic of the past. So I fell in love with them. I'd wear them to work, you know, wear them to weddings, wear them once with, with the tuxedo to this really kind of fancy wedding in Istanbul. I'd travel in them. And then I eventually moved back to New York after that summer to work in finance. I worked for a private equity fund here. And um, I wore my shoes all over the city, but they got destroyed because New York, you know, you're on your feet, you're, you're walking a lot. Cause, and the shoe at that time just had a leather sole. So I got in contact with um, the, my girl. There was an ex-girlfriend at that point, or we were friends. And I asked her who made the shoes. And it was uh, a man named Orhan, and his family had been in the shoe business since the late 1800s. And they were one of the last remaining shoemakers of, in Turkey that, that hand-stitched this kind of shoe with kind of the original integrity since the beginning. I said, I asked him, it was a personal request. I said, would you send me another pair? But I would love it if it didn't have a curled up toe, no pattern <laughs> on the top. And I had a friend send him a really nice piece of black leather, like a really fine piece of leather. And then I asked him to glue rubber on the sole. And he sent them to my office. I put on my feet and they were money. So I wow. immediately called them and I said, I want a red pair. I want a blue pair. And this is all for fun. I wasn't really considering opening a business. Although I, I had, you know, I always have had side hustles. I've always been entrepreneurial. Um, but it was just a personal project. Um, and then I ended up giving them as gifts to friends. And, you know, one thing led to another. And I thought, this, I think this could be a business. And I didn't concoct any sort of business plan. I just called the one and I said, send me 300 pairs, please. Wow. And uh, a whole bunch of colors, a whole bunch of sizes. He said, all right, how about 150? Because 300 would take him forever. It was, a, it was just a three or four person operation at that time in Gaza and Seb. And he sent them all to my, um, I lived in a little townhouse in the East Village in New York at that time, right off the street. And all the shoes arrived. I decided to call them Sabas. I had a little brand put on all the, all the shoes. And I hosted a party at my house on a weeknight. It was June 2013. And I think I invited every single person I'd ever met in New York. I said, I'm having a party. 
Ellen, I'm launching a shoe brand. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much been our ethos ever since we post a lot of events. Wow. And all, all my friends turned out and I sold, I don't know, I think I sold 30 or 40 pairs of shoes. Um, I didn't have a way to take credit cards. I mean, it was cash or PayPal me later. There was no, you know, there was really lo-fi and simple. And I had a blast. And so then every weekend for the rest of that summer, I would host what I call the Saba Saturday or a Saba Sunday at my house and have people come by and they'd buy shoes, we'd make drinks, we'd hang out and, you know, I was, it was sort of like a, a shoe speakeasy uh, meets a salon. And I just, I always like to host people. And so for me, this was like, this was a fun way for me to express myself. I was making money. I was having fun. And by the end of the summer, I had made more money, significantly more money selling shoes than I did in my, my finance gig. And I thought this, I, you know, I got to know Orhan. I was really getting excited about the product. So I quit my job. I flew to Gaziantep and I spent about two weeks really getting to know him and the product and um you know we've been kind of rolling ever since so so the same guy is making your shoes yeah same family um you know we've invested into his workshop sorry for the i'm in new york so there's sirens in the background hey it's just ambiance it's Um, great same family but we you know we've invested into the workshop so we've you know we started we were in a small house and now we're in a four floor facility they've gone from three to almost 40 workers they have a training program and you know the, the craft was the craft was very much alive, but it, I would say it didn't, you know, it wasn't booming. There wasn't anybody taking this and, um, you know, exporting it outside of Turkey and, and kind of giving it the twist we were in the marketing and you know, obviously the refinement. I mean, we, we put a lot of time and effort and energy into really improving the shoes, really getting the materials right, refining the, the construction and the methods. We bought all new machinery. We refined the workshop. And so everything's still done by hand with all the original integrity but just with a lot more refinement and, and, and much higher quality materials. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. So, so I got to ask you, I got to ask you a question. So my, my son is, uh, works in tech, but he's, he's customer facing enterprise, uh, uh, customer success guy. And his boss just yesterday, he texted me, he said, Hey, my boss says, wants me to go to our customer in Turkey. And then added, it's not near the Syrian border. And uh, uh, so you led with it's near the Syrian border. So talk a little bit about how crazy that is and what kinds of risks that presents for you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's become, um, I, I, you know, I always struggle to find the word to describe it, but it's made our work very interesting and even more meaningful. So Gaziantep, and I, I don't know if this is exactly the fact, but it's either the first or second um, largest population of Syrian refugees. Um, you know, Syrian refugees in the world. Wow. It's either, I think it's there in Jordan. So the city's, um, you know, really become um, a hot point for the refugee crisis. Also, due to its proximity to Syria, it was a transit point from ISIS into that region, which was just across the border for many years. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of NGOs. There was a lot of journalists. Um, there was a lot of everything happening in Gaziantep, and it was, it was a really wild place to be. Um, and so I thought long and hard about whether or not it was a good idea to continue to make my shoes there. And I've explored alternatives, but ultimately, you know, first of all, those are the best makers. You know, there's no one else that makes these kind of shoes. Yeah. They do it at the very best. And Orhan is the best of the best. And I also really was committed. You know, we, we, we made a commitment to each other to build this. And so I've just, you know, it's been part of our business and our kind of ethos is to invest back into a community that a lot of people are leaving or, let's say, or probably would be scared to invest in. You know, Gaziantep's uh, 
Last I checked, a level four no-go zone by the State Department. Wow. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, look, you and I could go and you'd be perfectly fine, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, it, it, and it's also calmed down a lot. But a few years ago, there was a few moments we had to close our workshop due to risks. Um, but, you know, we, we now, you know, we now employ five or six refugees from Syria. Two gentlemen named Ali were the first that came over. They worked in a high heel shoe factory in Syria. One of their homes was bombed. And, you know, they had to get out of Aleppo. Aleppo is a, distru- yeah. you know, it's a disaster yeah. zone. So they came across the border. They originally were working in sweatshops in Istanbul. And just through connections, we found out about their, their technique and abilities. And, you know, Gaziantep promotes hiring from the Syrian workforce. So we hired them. And, you know, now one of the Ali's, who's pretty pretty prominently featured in a lot of our imagery, you know, I love to share from the workshop and really connect craft to our customers. You know, he's responsible for the top stitching on every single pair of Saba's made for the last four years, he and his team, you know, and his family's resettled. They bought a house, you know, he's, you know, he's really made a career and a business out of producing Saba's and, you know, he's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's been a wonderful partnership and, you know, I've gotten to know his family. I've had dinner with him. I mean, so it's, it's created a lot of meaning. We don't, you know, we don't overtly market, you know, for me, people should buy my shoes because they're really well made, of course, with integrity and ethics, and we have great service. You know, all these other stories are if you decide to dig and, you know, go beneath the surface a little bit, we have a lot of beautiful stories of their brands. Um, but, but it's not definitely, it's not something we, we market overtly. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's been a big part of the journey. Um, yeah, but I, I want to push you a little bit on that, uh, Mickey, because I, I think it is absolutely essential to the story of this product. And I'll sure. bet you, I mean, when I saw it, that was part of what I thought was cool about it for sure. And, uh, but, but, but this presents a challenge because that authenticity is what gives the brand its cool factor and allows you to charge a fair bit of money for these. Um, and, but as soon as you become, and I'll evoke another Wharton startup, as soon as you become Allbirds, it's lost that, right? And so how do you maintain – well, I shouldn't say it's lost that because Allbirds, I think, has its own kind of – can maintain its own kind of brand. But there's a certain element to this brand that just doesn't scale. And so how have you – you know, if it got to be such that 5% of the people on, air, on an airplane to Silicon Valley were wearing them, you, you'd lose what you had. And you couldn't make them in where you're making them. So how do you think about that trade-off? It's a good question. Um, I don't think I've, I've nailed the answer as much as I don't think that that much about it. You know, I, you know, we're, we're an, you know, we didn't raise money to start the business. So it's independently owned. You know, it's a small bit. I I consider, I never considered my business a startup. I always considered it a family business from the beginning. Yeah. You know, most of my employees are started as neighbors, friends, or, or customers. Um, and so, you know, I, I think for us, you know, it's, it's really a slow and steady game. I'm thinking about, you know, I, I think about our business over a much longer time horizon than maybe a lot of the startups that have raised money yeah. and have the need to make exits. So I think, you know, over a 20 or 30 year time horizon, we're going to grow slow. We're going to grow steadily. You know, we have a really strong, you know, strong business. And, and my focus from the beginning has been I want to build the largest base of recurring repeat customers that feel like really part of our brands. And that's what we've done. You know, we haven't focused that much on new customer acquisition. It's just really been about, let's build something strong at the core. 
and, and, and my thought is the rest, you know, if we continue to make our shoes um, with the same integrity, if our service scales, if our story stays real, um, then I think the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. Um, and, well, that's, that's, and that's my hope. And yeah. I think, you know, from a scale perspective, you know, we started with five workers. We're close to 40 now. Um, you know, we have a plan in place in Turkey to, to grow that significantly because, you know, because we charge the price we charge, we're able to pay our people really well and make investments back into that community. Um, and so there's actually a lot of people that want to work there now for the first time again. It's really interesting. For the first time ever, Orhan was telling me, he's like, the sons of the workers are asking to come work in this business again. Wow. You know, yeah. we got guys, 40, 56 year olds that have kids that are between the ages of, you know, 15 and 30. And they're like, I want to work with my dad now. Like, this is, this is, a, you know, there's an opportunity here. You know, we're, you know, all the shoes we make, they're signed by the craftsmen that made them. And we match every craftsman's initials and signature to a card about their story. And, you know, those guys, when we go and visit, they're so, it's like, it's such an amazing camaraderie. And we've all really built it together. So, you know, I, I really believe in kind of just the power of, of all those ideas. And, and uh, you know, at scale, I guess we're going to have to see. Um, but, uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, I really, you know, I consider our brand in real life first. You know, we, we really exist in the physical and all of that feeds our digital business. And so as we think about growth, you know, we've gone from one to we now have six or about to have seven stores. Um, all of them are different. They're all really interesting points of culture and, you know, are, are really neighborhood oriented. And um, I think that, uh, you know, we've taken a, again, it's an old world approach to retail, but in today's age, it's, it's very novel or let's say, you know, it's not, it's not what everyone else is doing, I think. Uh, you know, and I think again, like this is our approach. It's kind of slow and steady. Yeah. Well, it's really, it's really cool. And, and I just based on the website, the stores are, are beautiful and really interesting. And, um, but, but I guess the point I would underscore for our listeners is if you own this business and you've built it on your own and you're not beholden to outside capital, a business of modest scale can still be a fantastic success for you. Um, yeah. And, and so it gives you some flexibility that a lot of people don't have right. in entrepreneurship. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing people always ask me, you know, what my goal is. And I say independence. Yeah. You know, part of it. And that's always, that's why I started the business. And, and, and a big part of that's financial, of course, you know, I live a certain lifestyle and it, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I, I'd like to have, you know, I like you know, to make money and it's great. Um, but to me, it's ultimately about pure independence, which is, you know, I have the ability to take off and have lunch with a, with my girlfriend or a friend, um, you know, and, and, uh, and kind of, you know, live my life as I want, of course, with, you know, the business is demanding and that's, you know, and that idea also changes, you know, it goes from, you know, when I first started my business, I was super independent because it was just me, you know, now in the U S we're 25 employees approaching 30 and we have a shop in london so the demands have grown so the independence has actually shrunk but you know you imagine that that can grow again no so yeah so i I wonder if i can get you to to talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial journey so you were you're working for you graduated from wharton you're taking one of the more traditional well not the most traditional paths because you didn't go to wall street first but you went you went to, to work for the man in seattle 
and look at where he ended up. So I wonder if you could just comment on the randomness of opportunity and what advice you'd give for people who think they might want to be entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll give a, a few thoughts. I think one, you know, my training at Wharton and working for Microsoft and sticking through that, you know, three years, it wasn't a long, long time, but really working hard at Microsoft for three years and then spending a, you know, a year in finance was really beneficial. I think it's some, you know, I learned, a lot of hard skills in Excel and presentations and, you know, kind of all the, you know, the hard business skills. Um, I learned a lot. I learned how to work hard and really grind, which is naturally what you do when you start your own business. It kind of doubles. So I think, you know, I always, when I hear people going into the, go to work for the man first, I think it's great. You know, if, if, if it's for you and, and you can find that opportunity, you know, that certainly served me. You know, that's one, I think two, um, I had, I probably had 15 ideas between leaving college and starting Saba. And I attempted all of them at some level, some of which I actually made money from, um, and were real businesses before I landed on the final thing. And there's this quote by an artist named Chuck Close, and he's talking to younger artists and he says that, um, you know, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just get up and we go to work. And what he's talking about is when he wants to create a painting, he just starts to paint. He doesn't sit and think too, too, too long about what the painting is going to be. He starts to paint. He takes some inspiration. And he starts to express himself. And through that process of just getting going, the ultimate thing, you know, the ultimate painting comes. And he's a really successful artist. And I think a lot, you know, I hear a lot of people ask, you know, they ask me a lot of questions. About, oh, my God, how did you start? And how did you figure out the shipping from Turkey? And how did you get the legal stuff set up? I didn't. I just started selling shoes. And then I just started hustling and working and it was messy, but that process, you know, of just doing it was really how I started the business. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, I just expressed myself and I followed my gut and I would go down, you know, sometimes I marched down a path and we'd get, you know, halfway down and then I had to back up and go down a different path, but I wasn't afraid to just sort of go for it. Um, I mean, I think that's a lot of that's the definition of entrepreneurship is you're not afraid to take a risk and go for it. But I think, you know, also just start to go and not, you know, it's important to think, obviously, and be strategic and all the basic level, but not to get too, 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 too caught up in all the little details, you know, just get going, start selling, yeah. start working. Yeah. So, so make, we just have a couple minutes left, but have you, you know, you started this when you're in your twenties and mm -hmm. I wonder what resources you've made, you've taken advantage of to, to get advice and to learn about what you're doing. Do you have advisors? Do you have sources you go to? How have you learned? I have a lot of informal advisors. Number one would be my father and even my mother. And, to, you know, my dad had a big business, uh, you know, and has been a great advisor to me because you know, he ran a very successful business. And my mom gives me a lot of advice around things that, you know, she does, you know, very well. Um, you know, beyond that, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people and I ask a lot of questions, whether that's peers in the industry. Um, you know, I look at all these great companies, you know, Allbirds, Casper, Away, all these businesses that are doing a lot of things really well that we don't do well. And I always try to seek out people that work there and get, get lunch with them and listen. Um, you know, I have a handful of friends that I really lean on a lot. I'm, I'm, I started this by myself and I'm the sole owner. So it is lonely a lot. Well, not lonely, but, you know, you have a lot on your shoulders. So it's been a lot of friends, and it's been very informal. Um, you know, I look to – I think the other thing is 
I look to, I wouldn't say they're necessarily, they're not mentors, but it's more like role models who I may or may not know. But I look at people like Hamdi Lukaya that started Chobani, who I've had the fortune of meeting and hearing talk. And I think that guy is both the business that I admire. And so yeah, I think I've learned a lot by just reading about people I admire. You know, you look at Patagonia, him, I think Howard Schultz and Starbucks is an incredible story. And each, you know, Danny Meyer and um, his hospitality business. So I think it's been a, it's really been a combination. Yeah, well, well, Mickey, it's an amazing story, and I really like it as a counterpoint to a lot of the stuff we see in Silicon Valley, and I think it's just really incredible what you've done. So I really appreciate your making the time and for telling yeah. us a little bit more about Saba. Awesome. Thank you, Carl, and thanks for taking the interest. All right. Um, and, uh, All right, look for my order. All right. <laughs> All right, I will. To, to, to learn more, visit Saba.am. That's S-A-B-A-H. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.